Chapter Thirty One of Unknown to History by Charlotte Mary Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama. Evidence. In the meantime, the two Richard Talbots, father and son, had safely arrived in London and had been made welcome at the house of their noble kinsman. Now and Curl, they heard, were in Walsingham's house, subjected to close examination. Babington and all his comrades were in the tower. The council was continually sitting to deliberate over the fate of the latter unhappy men, of whose guilt there was no doubt, and neither Lord Talbot nor Will Cavendish thought there was any possibility of Master Richard gaining permission to plead how the unfortunate Babington had been worked on and deceived. After the sentence should be pronounced, Cavendish thought that the request of the Earl of Shrewsbury might prevail to obtain permission for an interview between the prisoner and one commissioned by his former guardian. Will was daily attending Sir Francis Walsingham as his clerk, and was not by any means unwilling to relate anything he had been able to learn. Queen Elizabeth was, it seemed, greatly agitated and distressed. The shock to her nerves on the day when she had so bravely overawed Barnwell with the power of her eye had been such as not to be easily surmounted. She was restless and full of anxiety, continually starting at every sound, and beginning letters to the Queen of Scots, which were never finished. She had more than once inquired after the brave sailor youths who had come so opportunely to her rescue, and Lord Talbot thought it would be well to present Dickon and his father to her and accordingly took them with him to Greenwich Palace, where they had the benefit of looking on as loyal subjects, while Her Majesty, in royal fashion, dined in public to the sound of drums, trumpets, fifes, and stringed instruments. But though dressed with her usual elaborate care, she looked older, paler, thinner, and more haggard than when Dickon had seen her three weeks previously, and neither her eye nor mouth had the same steadiness. She did not eat with relish, but almost as if she were forcing herself, lest any lack of appetite might be observed and commented upon, and her looks continually wandered as though in search of some lurking enemy, for in truth no woman, nor man either, could easily forget the suggestion which had recently been brought to her knowledge, that an assassin might lurk in her gallery and stab her with his dagger, or if she should walk in her garden he might shoot her with his dag or if she should walk abroad to take the air he might assault her with his arming sword and make sure work even though the enemies were safe in prison she knew not but that dagger dag or arming sword might still be ready for her and she believed that any fatal charge openly made against mary at the trial might drive her friends to desperation and lead to the use of dag or dagger she was more unhinged than ever before, and commanded herself with difficulty when going through all the scenes of her public life as usual. The Talbots soon felt her keen eye on them, and a look of recognition passed over her face as she saw Dickon. As soon as the meal was over, the table of trestles removed, she sent a page to command Lord Talbot to present them to her. "'So, sir,' she said, as Richard the Elder knelt before her, "'you are the father of two brave sons.' whom you have bred up to do good service. But I only see one of them here. Where is the elder? So please your majesty, Sir Amias Paulet desired to retain him at Chartley, to assist in guarding the Queen of Scots. It is well. Paulet knows a trusty lad when he sees him, and so do I. I would have had the youths both for my gentlemen pensioners, the elder when he can be spared from his charge, this stripling at once. 
"'We are much beholden to your majesty,' said Richard, bending his head the lower as he knelt on one knee, for such an appointment gave both training and recommendation to young country gentlemen, and was much sought after. "'Methinks,' said Elizabeth, who had the royal faculty of remembering faces, "'you have yourself so served us, Mr. Talbot.' "'I was for three years in the band of your majesty's sister, Queen Mary,' said Richard, "'but I quitted it on her death to serve at sea, and I have since been in charge at Sheffield, under my lord of Shrewsbury.' "'We have heard that he hath found your faithful servant,' said the Queen. "'Yea, so well affected as to even have refused your daughter and marriage to this same Babington. Is this true?' "'It is, so please your Majesty.' "'And it was because you already perceived his villainy?' "'There were many causes, madam,' said Richard, catching at the chance of saying a word for the unhappy lad. "'But it was not so much villainy that I perceived in him as a nature that might easily be practised upon by worse men than himself.' "'Not so much a villain ready-made as the stuff villains are made of,' said the Queen, satisfied with her own repartee. "'So please, Your Majesty, the metal that in good hands becomes a brave sword, an evil one becomes a treacherous dagger.' "'Well said, Master Captain, and therefore we must destroy alike the dagger and the hands that perverted it.' "'Yet,' ventured Richard, "'the dagger attempered by Your Majesty's clemency might yet do noble service.' Elizabeth, however, broke out fiercely with one of her wonted oaths. "'How now! Thou wouldst not plead for the rascal! I would have you to know that to crave pardon for such a fellow was well-nigh treason in itself. You have license to leave us, sir.' "'I should scarce have brought you, Richard,' said Lord Talbot, as soon as they had left the presence-chamber, "'had I known you would venture on such folly. Know you not how incensed she is? Not but your proved loyalty and my father's could have borne you off this time.' and it would be small marvel to me if the lad's appointment were forgotten. "'I could not choose but run the risk,' said Richard. "'What else came I to London for?' "'Well,' said his cousin, "'you are a brave man, Richard Talbot. I know those who had rather scale a Spanish fortress than face Queen Elizabeth in her wrath. Her tongue is sharper than even my stepdames, though it doth not run on so long.' Lord Talbot was not quite easy when that evening a gentleman, clad in rich scarlet and gold, and armed to the teeth, presented himself at Shrewsbury House and inquired for Mr. Talbot of Bridgefield. However, it proved to be the officer of the troop of gentlemen pensioners come down to enrol Dickon, tell him the requirements, and arrange when he should join in a capacity something like that of an esquire to one of the seniors of the troop. Humphrey was likewise inquired for, but it was thought better on all accounts that he should continue in his present situation since it was especially needful to have trustworthy persons at Chartley in the existing crisis. Master Richard was well satisfied to find that his son's immediate superior would be a gentleman of a good Yorkshire family, whose father was known to him, and who promised to have a care of Master Richard the Younger, and to preserve him as far as possible from the perils of dicing, drinking, and running into bad company. Launching his son in this manner, and equipping him for service, was an anxious task for a father, while day after day the trial was deferred, the examinations being secretly carried on before the council till, as Cavendish explained, what was important should be disclosed. Of course this implied what should be fatal to Queen Mary. The priest Ballard was racked, but he was a man of great determination, and nothing was elicted from him. The other prisoners, and now and Curl, were questioned again and again under threats and promises before the council, and the letters that had been copied on their transit through the beer-barrels were read and made the subject of cross-examination, 
still all in private, for, as Cavendish said, perilous stuff to the Queen's Majesty might come out. He allowed, however, day after day, that though there was quite enough to be fatal to Ballard, Babington, Savage, and Barnwell, whatever else was wanting was not forthcoming. At last, however, Cavendish returned full of a certain exultation. "'We have it, lad,' he said. "'A most undoubted treasonable letter, which will catch her between the shoulders and the head.' He spoke to Lord Talbot and Richard, who were standing together in a window, and who knew only too well who was referred to, and what the expression signified. On a further query from his stepbrother, Cavendish explained that it was a long letter, dated July 16, arranging in details the plans for the lady's own rescue from Chartley at the moment of the landing of the Spaniards, and likewise showing her privy to the design of the six gentlemen against the life of the Queen, and desiring to know their names. Now had, he said, verified the cipher as one used in the correspondence, and Babington, when it was shown to him, had declared that it had been given to him in the street by a stranger serving-man in a blue coat, and that it had removed all doubt from his mind, as it was an answer to a letter of his, a copy of which had been produced, but not the letter itself. "'Which we have not found,' said Cavendish. "'Not for all that search of yours at Chartley,' said Richard. "'Methought it was thorough enough.' "'The lady must have been marvellously prudent as to the keeping of letters,' said Will, "'or else she must have received some warning, for there is absolutely naught to be found in her repositories that will serve our purpose.' "'Our purpose,' repeated Richard, as he recollected many little kindnesses that William Cavendish, when a boy, had received from the prisoner at Sheffield. "'Yea, Master Richard,' he returned, unabashed, "'it is absolutely needful that we should openly prove this woman to be what we know her to be in secret.' Her Majesty's life will never be safe for a moment while she lives, and what will become of us all did she overlive the Queen? Well, Will, for all your mighty we, you are but the pen in Mr. Secretary's hand, so there is no need to argue the matter with you, said Richard. This speech considerably nettled Master William, especially as it made Lord Talbot laugh. Father, said Dickon afterwards, Humphrey tried to warn Mr. Babington that we had seen this Langston, who hath as many metamorphoses as there be in Ovidius Nasso, coming privily forth from Sir Francis Walsingham's closet, but he would not listen, and declared that Langston was holding Mr. Secretary in play. "'Deceiving and being deceived,' sighed his father. "'That is ever the way, my son. Remember that if thou playest false, other men will play falser with thee, and bring thee to thy ruin.' I would not leave thee here, save that the gentlemen pensioners are a more honest and manly sort of folk than yonder gentlemen with their statecraft, wherein they throw over all truth and honour as well as mercy. This conversation took place as the father and son were making their way to a house in Westminster, where Antony Babington's wife was with her mother, Lady Radcliffe. It had been a match made by Lady Shrewsbury, and it was part of Richard's commission to see and confer with the family. It was not a satisfactory interview. The wife was a dull, childish little thing, not yet sixteen, and though she cried, she had plainly never lived in any real sympathy or companionship with her husband, who had left her with her parents, while leading the life of mingled amusement and intrigue which had brought him to his present state. And the mother, a hard-featured woman, evidently thought herself cheated and ill-used. She railed at Babington, and at my lady countess by turns, at the one for his ruinous courses and neglect of her daughter, at the other for having cozened her and to giving her poor child to a treacherous papist, who would be attainted in blood, and thus bring her poor daughter and grandchild to poverty. 
the old lady really seemed to have lost all pity for her son-in-law in indignation on her daughter's account, and to care infinitely less for the saving of his life than for the saving of his estate. Nor did the young wife herself appear to possess much real affection for poor Antony, of whom she had seen very little. There must have been great faults on his side, yet certainly Richard felt that there was some excuse for him in the mother-in-law, and that if the unfortunate young man could have married Cicely, his lot might have been different. Yet the good captain felt all the more that if Cis had been his own, he still would never have given her to Babington. End of chapter 31 Recording by Tanika, Madison, Alabama